0: Hi, I'm Christopher Noth.
1: Hi, I'm Jennifer Mathis. Hi, I'm Celia McGinnis. One two three four
2: five six seven eight nine. now yeah, we will.
1: Yeah, commandments the willshade two, three, four, five, five. Can't tell me nothing about these wills. Nothing.
0: This chair. Uh-uh. Where my full will is at.
2: Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I wanna welcome you to episode three of our new podcast series, Disability Rights Today. Disability Rights Today provides listeners with new insights on recent court cases that shape the Americans with Disabilities Act and impact the civil rights of people with disabilities. Hi everybody, I'm Barry Whaley. I'm director at the Southeast ADA Center. And listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use the online form anytime at DisabilityRightsToday. That's all one word: DisabilityRightsToday.org. In today's episode, we want to focus on the court case C.L. versus Delamo Hospital Incorporated. In this case, the plaintiff C.L. had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and other conditions. She obtained a dog with the intent to train the dog Aspen to be a service animal. Service animals are defined as dogs individually trained to do work or perform tasks for people with disabilities. For example, guide dogs for people who are blind, uh, alerting people who um, are deaf. And in the case of CL, grounding a person with post-traumatic stress disorder during disassociation or an anxiety attack. Service animals are working animals. They are not pets. The work or task a dog has been trained to provide must be directly related to the person's disability. Dogs whose sole function is to provide comfort or emotional support are not service animals and do not have protections under the ADA. Due to the cost of formal certification, CL began self-training Aspen Between 2015 and 2017, she sought inpatient treatment at Del Amo Hospital's National Treatment Center. When she asked the National Treatment Center if she could bring Aspen with her as a service dog, Del Amo denied the dog as an accommodation. The district court entered judgment in favor of Del Amo Hospital on the ground that Aspen did not qualify as a service animal under the ADA. However, in a ruling filed on March 30, 2021, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held that the District Court erred by effectively imposing a certification requirement for CL's dog to be qualified as a service animal under the ADA. They vacated and remanded for the District Court to consider whether Aspen was a qualified service dog at the time of trial. Number two, if Aspen is a service dog, whether Del Amo had proved its affirmative defense of fundamental alteration. So we're fortunate today to have as our guests three of the counsel for the plaintiff in the case. Christopher Knopf, Director of Litigation, Disability Rights Legal Center, Jennifer Mathis, Deputy Legal Director and Director of Policy and Legal Advocacy at the Judge David L. Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, and Cecilia McGinnis of Derby, McGinnis, and Goldsmith. And we're joined today by Dr. Peter Blank, Director of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. So we welcome everybody to today's podcast, and Peter, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Barry, for
3: that great introduction. I'm here with three amazing lawyers who have changed the lives for the better of so many people around the country with disabilities and their supporters and family members. We often forget, sometimes as lawyers, myself, that at the end of the day, these cases are about literally life and death, death to terminations and quality of life determinations for people with disabilities who just wanna be a part of society and contribute like anybody else. This case, which you'll hear about today, is really reflective of that concept. A woman who sought to improve the quality of her life in daily life activities and through the use of a psychiatric service animal and three lawyers, three amazing lawyers Uh, came to her assistance and eventually prevailed at the Ninth Circuit with additional future questions to come. I thought I'd start with Chris Knopf today. Chris is a very distinguished lawyer, director, legal director of the Disability Rights Law Center and was lead counsel in this case and Chris, welcome. Perhaps you can take us through briefly an overview of the facts and the, the law and the outcomes in this case.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Peter, um, for the very kind introduction. And thanks very much to the Southeast ADA Center for for inviting us to join you today. Um, So uh, while I'm director of litigation at DRLC in Los Angeles today, when I first met CL, uh, I was running my own small firm in Los Angeles. Um, CL lives in Orange County and she can't remember how she was referred to me, but this started out as, you know, one of those plain little service dog cases that a lot of us practitioners, you know, get from time to time. And, you know, this case, very straightforward in my view, was a denial of uh, a legitimate service dog for a person with a disability in a hospital setting. And I was really excited to take on the case, Um, it's been a pleasure litigating it. Um, And and look what we have, as Peter mentioned, we just have an amazing, you know, effectively a nationwide published decision from the Ninth Circuit that, you know, really beautifully lays out the law on um, service dogs in general, uh, certification of service dogs and specifically service dogs for folks with psychiatric disabilities. So um, it's an amazing result, and it's still going. Uh, We're back in the district court, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But just to give a little background on CL, um, truly, truly impressed with her from the moment I met her Um, and Aspen, her service dog. Um, Aspen's a little uh, Bichon poodle mix, uh, a little adorable white, you know, fluffy dog that you know, doesn't wear a vest, doesn't have um, the other accoutrement that one might obviously see as a service dog. And of course, that doesn't matter. Uh, Aspen was still serving CL's needs, even when meeting with me. And um, and CL um, is a PhD speech-language pathologist, um, a researcher, uh, super articulate, and has devastating psychiatric disabilities based on a really a truly traumatic childhood, um, which I'm not going to go into. But, um, you know, the, the facts are horrific. And she has dealt with suicidal ideation for her entire life. Um, to her credit, um, the CL's uh, oh, probably a little over 50 uh, today. And when she was in her 20s, she started uh, receiving therapy. um, And later in life, she was, you know, fairly at her wits' end as to what to do about her situation. She was essentially incapacitated, you know, very, very difficult to go out in public at all, and, you know, discovered the idea of a service doc. And she, um, with her research abilities and intellect, you know, looked for compatible breeds, those that could be trained, those that were deemed to be, um, you know, very good, you know, potential for service dogs. You never know. You have to train the dog and, and then, you know, hopefully it works out to be a match with the handler. Um, she certainly researched how expensive it was to get a pre-trained service dog. Uh, to the tune of about $15,000, at, at least at one outlet. Um, and so she really had no choice. She was low income. It was difficult for her to work. Um, and so she uh, obtained her own dog from a breeder. And she set about um, training Aspen. Uh, first with, you know, standard obedience. And then she picked up a book by a woman named Katie Gonzalez who uh, runs a service dog training center in san diego county and the service the the book was called how to train your own psychiatric service dog uh, available on on amazon for purchase Um, and cl set about training aspen on her own and then even went to uh, katie gonzalez's agency little angel service dogs to do a one day training Um, and and so she successfully trained Aspen to do a number of different tasks related to her disability. Um, you know, Alert, grounding for dissociative disorder and for uh, anxiety and panic. Um, waking her from nightmares was actually the first task that Aspen started doing and then she reinforced with proper training methods. So she had a stable of tasks that Aspen was performing. And nevertheless, during this time, CL still needed to get medical care. There were times and triggers that caused her to be suicidal, and she needed professional help. And so her go-to place for this was Delamo Hospital in Torrance, California, um, which, you know, they worked inpatient with folks uh, in her situation and she found uh, that to be effective. She had been there a, a couple of times uh, before having Aspen, and it was the only place locally that she could afford to go. And so when she got Aspen, she knew her rights, and she requested to bring Aspen with her, and Delamo refused. refused. Um, no real reason given, no analysis of the dog, no Other than asking for vaccination records which CL provided, there was no other inquiry. So after, I'll just summarize it as, after a couple of different um, attempts, the hospital continued to refuse for no reason whatsoever, and so CL then sought out my assistance. We wrote a demand letter. Uh, It went unanswered, or I don't recall at this point they it didn't go anywhere <laughs> and we filed suit um, and we we sought damages and injunctive relief in order that would allow CL to bring Aspen whenever she needed to check herself into the hospital. And um, the defense uh, brought a motion to dismiss and our judge, um, the now famous David O. Carter in Santa Ana, um, you know, ha- issued a very nice decision denying the motion to dismiss, and allowing the litigation to proceed. And at that point, I knew I had my hands full. And as a small firm, I knew that I needed to get a team together. Um, I need to get reputable folks to be on the pleadings and litigate the case with me. And I am thankful to Jennifer Mathis and the Baselon Center for um, joining at that point. Um, So Peter, I'll pause there. Um, We have a motion for summary judgment we can discuss, but I'll I'll pause there to to let you ask the next one.
3: Okay, well, that's a great overview and start of the discussion, Chris. Thank you so much. Let me turn to Celia McGinnis next. If there is a legal counsel in the United States that has litigated impact psychiatric service dog cases uh, that would be Celia McGinnis. She actually had a precedential case before this, which maybe she can talk about. But Celia, thank you so much for participating. And perhaps you can take us through more of, the, uh, of this journey and where we're at, and then I'll turn to Jennifer after you.
4: Terrific, thank you, Peter. I came into this case in the third act. I came into this case shortly before trial after Jennifer had come in and she and Chris had ably um, guided the case through summary judgment uh, when they were getting ready for trial and it became clear that the case was not going to settle and Chris called me up and invited me to participate in the trial. Was very excited to do that because as you said, I had had... Number of service dog cases, and one of them was the case you referred to, which was Tomorrow versus El Camino Hospital, which was the first case in the country where a judge ruled that a service dog could not be excluded from a locked psychiatric ward. And it was the first case to talk about um, psychiatric service dogs in the context of hospitals, of psychiatric hospitals, and talk about. A slightly different but related issue, which was the the concept of whether the presence of a service dog on a psychiatric ward would present a direct threat to the the service dog owner or to, to other people on the ward. And the judge in that case ruled that no, in fact, the presence of the service dog, there was no evidence it would have presented a direct threat. And that the the, the um, hospital had discriminated against the service dog user by excluding the dog. And uh, Chris and I had met around that case and around some other issues. And when he invited me to participate in this case, I was I was very excited to talk about these issues. So I I came into the case I think only about six weeks before the trial, and um, but we got up to speed very quickly. And when I started to um, to delve into the facts and all the work that Chris and Jennifer had done, it became very obvious to me that um, the judge was really concerned about the dog in the case and that we were going to have to do a lot of education to uh, on the issue of whether the dog was a service dog or not. We were really worried about Um, the amount of work we had to do, the amount of education we needed to do, and we were worried about whether the presence of a jury would be a distraction. And so we had to make a hard decision early in the the pretrial process about whether or not um, we would continue to seek a jury trial, which we we had done from the outset, uh, or whether we would just try the case straight to the judge, we were a little worried that because of some of the emotional issues involved in the case that a jury might be distracted by bias against some of the psychiatric issues bias against um, service dog cases that have been in the news and we decided it would be simpler if we just had an audience of one to focus on so we spoke with CL and we said to CL Uh, In order to uh, just focus this issue on what's really important, um, getting admission for your service dog into the hospital, we would like to uh, waive a jury and just try this case to the bench to the judge. In order to do that, we have to uh, give up any damages demands. We have any demands for compensation for the discrimination that you've experienced. For me personally, and I think for Chris and Jennifer too, it was a difficult decision because we strongly believe that disability discrimination should be compensated, uh, just the same as a person who is victimized by sexual harassment or racial discrimination should be compensated by the person that has discriminated against them. People who have experienced disability discrimination deserve to be made whole. But CL's focus has always been on ensuring her right to bring her service dog to the hospital. That was always her main goal. And so she followed our judgment and we agreed to drop all our claims for damages and to just focus on trying the case to the judge, which um, once we made that decision, it really simplified matters and allowed us to focus on and sort of narrow and hone the issues for trial.
3: Thank you, Celia. We'll come back to you more in a in a little bit you and Chris. Uh, Jennifer Mathis, one of the unsung, low-key, yet incredibly impactful individuals who, every day, is making a difference in the lives of people with disabilities for the better, particularly psychiatric uh, illness and disabilities, is a leader at the Bazelon Center, which is the nation's premier mental health uh, advocacy organization out of Washington D.C. and perhaps Jennifer, you can tell us a little bit about what Bazelon does. But Jennifer, why this case? Why is it so important? And what are the implications it may have for uh, broader national policy?
1: Thanks, Peter. Um, I'll just say the Bazelon Center, as background, um, began in 1972 as the Mental Health Law Project. And we're a national nonprofit. We uh, work through litigation and policy advocacy, education and training to advance the rights and dignity of people with mental disabilities, primarily people with psychiatric disabilities, really in all aspects of life, including healthcare, community living, employment, housing, professional licensing, voting, parental and family rights, you name it. Um, we had started out as the mental health law project, which was really a sort of spinoff of the ACLU, but my interest in this case, which is, um, I think, a little bit of an unusual case for the Bazelon Center because we tend to do big class actions or big systemic actions around um, mental health service systems, uh, but we also do uh, individual cases, particularly when they are a good vehicle to advance a certain principle. And you know, here, I think there were a number of reasons why this case seemed important for the rights of people with psychiatric disabilities. And um, one aspect of this case is really that this is a non-clinical intervention that is really important and often is the only intervention that consistently works for a lot of folks with psychiatric disabilities. Um, Many people take medications, sometimes the medications work great, sometimes they don't, sometimes they work for a while and then they don't. Uh, Sometimes people, you know, struggle for years to get sort of the right combinations and the right dosages. And so, uh, and there are unpleasant side effects that many people experience and so, You know, I think it has always been, in my mind, very important that there are other interventions that are available to people when they work besides just, you know, meds and beds. Um, And, you know, increasingly, recent years, we are seeing more focus on non-clinical interventions like peer support services, employment services, housing supports which are every bit as important, you know, if not sometimes more important than clinical interventions in people's lives. And so um, I, you know, I've seen people uh, increasingly who are clients of ours use uh, psychiatric service animals, um, really, really important role that those animals play in their lives. Um, You know, sometimes people who use medication, but need something else in addition because the medication isn't always enough, doesn't always work, or only addresses certain things and not others. Um, and other times, you know, people don't respond to medications. And so um, this is a very important thing. I have seen people in the past be denied admission to psychiatric hospitals, or actually be, you know, have their animals denied and so not be able to take in. With them, a psychiatric service animal when they were at that crisis point when they needed to go into the hospital. And that is, I think, often the point when it is most important that people have their supports available to them. And hospitalization can be an incredibly traumatic experience. And so when Chris came to me about this case, I was very excited. I thought it was very important for, you know, principal reasons. And, you know, it was a good opportunity, I think, to develop the law. And I think it's important, you know, not just um, really in terms of developing the law in terms of rights to use psychiatric service animals as an intervention and to get, you know, accommodations for that, but also to get clinical, traditional mental health settings and professionals to recognize that. I mean, this is a situation where you've got, you know, a psychiatric hospital saying, you know, that that doesn't matter, you know, like we give you everything you need. And, I think that was also an aspect of this that to me made it very important, you know, more so even than say, talking about psychiatric service animals in a hotel or another setting, but um, really to kind of get the traditional mental health world to start understanding and recognizing these kinds of interventions as important and um, worthy of, of um, people's rights.
0: And if I can jump in, Peter, if I I may jump in on that point, um, I want to close the loop on CL because what Jennifer said is is so true for so many folks. And for CL, I mean, in in her trial testimony, she talked about prior to having Aspen, she would run into the supermarket, grab one box of cereal, pay for it, (laughs) and then run out. And, that, and that's all she could do because of how she was feeling and the effect of her disability. After Aspen, she's been able to work more, go to the market just like anybody else can, um, and really reintegrate into society. So as Jennifer points out, and, and in CL's case, Aspen was life-changing. Aspen saved her life, is what she has said. And just to... For folks out there listening, you know, the, the service dog option is just so tremendous, change CL's life. And I and I really truly hope and believe it will it will change other people's
3: lives as well. Uh, Chris, thank you for that. You actually set up my next question because you and I have spoken. Aspen not only changed CL's life, but I understand from you that being a self-advocate and fighting for her rights, testifying in court was a life-changing event for CL as well and a very positive outcome for her on that level.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, understandably given her personal history, you know, trust is something that's very difficult for her to to come by. And you know, it's a credit to the whole team that worked with her and on that point I really want to give a shout out to my associate, Alexander Robertson, who you know together, us working together with CL through the discovery process, um, you know, representing her at deposition, allowing her to tell her story and fight for rights that she knew were right. She knew what the law was. She knew it before she ever met us. Um, and the ability to see the justice system in action has been extremely powerful for her.
3: Now, I just wanna give a note to our listeners to thank them and to say, if you have questions about this topic or any other disability rights topics uh, for our show, Disability Rights Today, please submit your questions online at disabilityrightstoday.org. That's all one word, disabilityrightstoday.org or call the Southeast ADA Center at one 541 9001 Chris, let me ask you, as we've gone through this conversation, what happens next? Where are we now with the case? What are you guys preparing for?
0: Well, Peter, the case continues. The case has been remanded by the Ninth Circuit for further proceedings in the trial court. Um, the issue on the first appeal was really simply whether Aspen was a, you know, a service dog and more, even more specifically was a certification required um, for a finding that Aspen was a service dog at the time of trial. and. Interestingly, the way the district court worded its initial order, it like we've talked about, it it also wanted guidance from the Ninth Circuit on this. I mean, we felt the regulations were very clear, um, but the court wanted that question resolved first as a preliminary matter. So, thankfully, it's been resolved very squarely with what the law already provides, um, but with a tremendous um, you know, background and explanation of why the law, you know, says what it does, both the statute and the regulations, why DOJ issued the regulations that it did and allowed, importantly, people with disabilities to train their own service dogs. Uh There's a very, imp- lots of very important reasons why that was the holding of the court. Um, and so um, we now go back And we are in the process of briefing the trial court on, um, first we have to confirm, have the court confirm that Aspen is a service dog. We are hopeful that the the court will do that given the Ninth Circuit's guidance. Uh, And then we're gonna brief what we thought was gonna be the primary issue in the case. And that is would Aspen's presence with CL at the hospital have Fundamentally altered the uh, treatment that CL was receiving, um, and so it's the burden is on the defense to show that their trial evidence, um, you know, met the burden of proving that that there would have been a fundamental, a complete change or inability to implement their their treatment program for CL because of Aspen's presence. Um, you know, we feel very strongly that the evidence uh, is to the contrary. Uh, that um, not only would aspen not have interfered but um, cl absolutely fervently believes that aspen would have increased the benefits that would have, aspen would have allowed her to focus on the things that they wanted her to focus on during her therapy you know by grounding her by you know addressing her hypervigilance um you know allowing her to Take in more of what the treatment sought to provide. So, we are hopeful that the trial court will uh, agree with us in that regard. We, and then we fully expect um, the matter to go back up to the Ninth Circuit on that question as well. And we will have a CL versus Delamo 2 decision at some point.
4: If I may jump in on that, I think this question of fundamental alteration really focuses in circles back to what Jennifer said at the very beginning of this episode, which is um, focusing on who gets to decide how a person treats or handles or manages the symptoms of her uh, of her medical condition or her mental illness. The legal question of fundamental alteration has nothing to do with how well CL would receive therapy or whether the dog would be a distraction to her receipt of therapy. So whether the dog would be good for her or bad for her matters not. Because the legal question is, would the dog's presence change something in the essential nature? of the program that Del Almo hospital provides. And the answer to that, all the evidence shows that it would not change anything. Del Alamo would still be a psychiatric hospital. It would still provide group therapy, individualized therapy, heart therapy, room and board. The program would go on. And furthermore, all the witnesses from the hospital testified they did nothing to investigate what impact, if any, the dog Aspen would have on the program? <laughs> they didn't even allow the dog in for a test run. They didn't do any research on service dogs in psychiatric hospitals. They didn't even look at the dog. They didn't do look at the medical research on psychiatric dogs. They did absolutely nothing to investigate because they were all focused on their ability to control CL's receipt of information and the outcomes for CL. And their desire to control and be in charge of how she received information, how she received therapy, we can talk about that as a separate issue, but that was just legally wrong. And so what we need the court to focus on in this next phase is focusing on whether the evidence proves the legal standard and not get sidetracked by questions of whether doctors are right or doctors are wrong because the statute and the regulations have already answered that baked into the statute is the presumption that people with disabilities are independent people who get to manage their disabilities in their own way and the only exception to that is if somehow the dog causes a direct harm to people by its presence which Del Amo has admitted candidly, the dog would not, or it causes a fundamental alteration to the program, which Del Amo has not proved or even attempted to prove. All the other issues that that the hospital is raising, these are issues of ableism, of medical control, um, and, we have to rebut them because they're sort of baked into our culture and we need to respond to them in some ways, but we always have to keep bringing it back to can they prove their case and they can't.
3: Well, there you have uh, an oral argument to a court by one of the best (laughs) attorneys in the country on that issue. We'll see what the court decides. Last question to Celia. Uh, You started this ball rolling, Celia. You have a lot of individuals with disabilities and service providers and employers listening to this call. What's the message going forward? Where where do you think this case law is going? Obviously now you've worked on two cases in this area. Both were in California. Do you see action in other areas and where do you see this case law going?
4: Abby Tamara, uh, who is the plaintiff in Tamara versus El Camino Hospital, she started this ball rolling. Abby and and CL are sort of the mothers of, of this development of the law. This, the ball starts rolling when people with disabilities stand up and advocate for themselves and their communities to be the independent people that they're entitled to be. We as lawyers um, work to support them. And, and you know, our goal is with this, with this issue of psychiatric service animals, what we're really doing is is filling in the gaps because the statute is there, the regulations are there, and then the the questions that are being answered by these cases are sort of uh, filling in the details where um, the law just hasn't been fleshed out. And I think when you mention employers, I think it's really true that one of the reasons we went to the Ninth Circuit and back is that Del. Del Amo hospital wanted answers to these questions too. It benefits public accommodations and government agencies when they know what the parameters are as well. So the way that we proceed with these cases is sort of intentionally, incrementally and carefully. We wanna pick cases that we think will sort of expand um, stepwise and so if there are attorneys out there uh, who have these kinds of cases that are similar, I'm always happy to uh, work with folks, give advice at the very least. We have a nationwide network of attorneys who always have their ears out and are, we have the Disability Rights Bar Association, for instance, who who hears about these cases and are willing to work on a nationwide, basis collectively to make sure that the cases that we bring are going to have a positive rather than a negative impact. Because sometimes uh, it's better to let a case go than to appeal it if you think it's going it's to work to the detriment of the movement overall. The Ninth Circuit is often looked to as, as a leader in uh, appellate law. And so I think having this decision in the Ninth Circuit is going to prompt other courts of appeal when they receive these issues to look to the Ninth Circuit and see what its thinking was. I'm not aware of any other cases that are pending appeal in other circuits on this specific issue, but I have no doubt that this will be looked at for the next decade (laughs) as the first word and um, as a signpost for where other courts go from here.
3: Well, thank you, Celia. And I want to thank Christopher, Jennifer, and Celia today. I would urge our listeners, they can be found on the web very easily, the Disability Rights Law Center, Celia's law firm in San Francisco, and of course the Bazelon Center, all leaders in this area. I'm really grateful, and we are really grateful at the Southeast ADA for you sharing your time and valuable insights on this important case. And uh, again, I wanna thank you all for an incredibly interesting and important discussion and uh, look forward to hearing more about this in the future. Thanks again.
2: As a reminder to access Disability Rights Today episodes, please visit our website at disabilityrightstoday.org. All episodes are archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts and resources. Remember, if you have questions about the ADA, you can submit them at any time online at disabilityrightstoday.org or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Please remember those calls are always free and they're confidential. Disability Rights Today is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda, with Beth Miller-Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. Thanks again for listening. For more information, please visit our website, disabilityrightstoday.org, and remember, your rights matter. As a reminder, listeners, the personal opinions expressed by our guest speakers in this episode should not be understood as an endorsement by the ADA National Network the Southeast ADA Center or Syracuse University.